You're listening to audio from Park Church. More info and resources are online at parkchurch.org. Take care. Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 122. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one in the pew back in front of you. You'll find today's reading on page 517. If you don't own a Bible, please stop by the information table after the service. We'd like to give you one as a gift from Park Church. Again, we're reading from Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There, thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thank you, Deanna. Good morning. It's good to see you all. For whatever it's worth, I'm a big fan of dad jokes. Uh, And my kids are old enough uh, to, you know, give me the kind of like grab their forehead, shake their head kind of thing that I know they like it, which is like rule number one about dad jokes. That's what you're looking for. You're not looking even for a laugh. You're looking for like, they don't want to laugh. They want to shrug you off, but they still kind of like it. That's what you're aiming for. Whether or not they do, I don't know, but I feel like they do. Uh, so that dad joke inception was, was awesome, on point. Um, we uh, today uh, do want to welcome uh, the dads and say happy Father's Day to you. Uh, Just grateful for who you are, the way you image of God in your families and around this church family. Uh, We're just grateful for you. Uh, I've said this before, but I I don't know of any dads, I don't know that I've had an interaction with any dad that really feels like they're killing it as a father. I think for most of us, we feel areas where we fall short, where we wish we'd done better. We feel like we carry different regrets and mistakes, and we see the impact of those. And I want to say to all of you, wherever you feel, both the the kind of joyful moments where you feel like you have shown up well, and in those moments and spaces where you feel like you haven't been what what you hope to be and what you feel like God's called you to be, that you would feel God's love for you here today, that you know that the Father in heaven sees you in both the ways you image him faithfully and in the ways you fall short, and he loves you. He sent Jesus to die for you, to cleanse you, to wash you. He sings over you. And that you'd feel secure in his love today, washed and cleansed and set free in the love of our Father in heaven. And I want to say, again, my prayer for you today is that you would know God's love for you and feel encouraged by that. Uh, I also know that Father's Day can be a really emotionally complex space for for so many reasons. Uh, I woke up this morning uh, with a lot of sadness for uh, friends and, and family members that I know and care deeply about that have lost fathers recently. And I was just thinking today, uh, this morning, about Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And if there are things that you're mourning with respect to fatherhood, maybe it's the loss of a father, maybe it's tension in a relationship with a father, maybe your own father, 
wasn't the best image of God, and that, that might feel like saying it lightly to some of you. Maybe there's a lot of pain in a relationship with a father. Maybe you are a father and you feel regrets or in a strange relationship with one of your own children or a loss of a child or, again, a loss of a father at any point in your life. Uh, we understand that there's sorrow attached to fatherhood as well. And our hope for all of you today is that wherever you feel joy and gladness today, wherever you feel that sorrow, that God would meet you. He'd bring comfort into those spaces. He'd bring a reminder of his love, his healing power, his fatherly care. I think probably for some of you, the image of God as a father is a painful image because of the damage in your own relationship with your father. And even today, our prayer that God would meet you in that space to remind you of his love for you, that he sees you, he cares about you, he cares about your story, he's paying attention that you would lift your eyes to him today, that we'd all see him as our creator who protects, who provides, who cares, who guides, who loves, who listens, who comforts and counsels, and he'd experience the nearness of God today. And so we're going to pray that uh, the Holy Spirit would actually take that reality and, uh, and embed it deep within our souls this morning as we spend time in his word, even in a passage where largely this passage is about a family of children that have been scattered, that have made their way back home to be in the presence of their father as brothers and sisters. So our prayer is that God would actually kind of draw near to you in a unique way today. So would you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, uh, we at times are overwhelmed at the invitation to call you Father. The fact that Jesus would teach us to pray to you, to just share in his relationship as your child, as your son, that he'd teach us that we can call you our father in the heavenly realm, our unseen father who reigns and loves and works in and through each moment. We want to come to you right now with gratitude. Uh, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for seeing us even in our rebellion, even in our wandering, and even in all the ways we've run away from your love and avoided your love and felt our hearts hardened against your love, that you would pursue us in Jesus, that Jesus, you would come after us to display the Father's love as you would lay down your life for us, that you, the righteous one, would die for us, the unrighteous, to, to reconcile us, to bring us to God, to re reconcile us to our Father. And so I pray today that uh, all of us would experience your love in Jesus, and as your spirit has been poured out on your people, that we would have, even within us, this ability to cry out to you as, as the dad, as the, as the father that we long for where we find security, where we find love, where we find peace, where we find kindness, compassion, care, guidance, authority, wisdom. And so would you draw near to us as a family today? And not just us with you as individual children to a father, but would you teach us what that means in our relationships to one another? As we all come to you, as we all gather here on a Sunday morning to be reminded of our father's presence and care and what you've done for us in Christ would you also remind us of what that means in our relationships with one another as brothers and sisters, what it means to be together in your presence. Give us joy as we gather together in your house, in your presence. Here this morning we pray in Christ's name, amen. I want to ask you to consider a question for a moment, and that is, why are you here today? Why are you here today, or why are you tuning in online today? Why, why are you here 
Uh, for some of you, there might be reasons of it's just what I've always done. For some of you, there's a hunger every week to come and to worship Jesus. For some of you, there's pressure from a parent or from a sibling or from a spouse. Uh, for some of you, again, it's just kind of habit. Some of you don't know there's stuff happening in your life today and you've kind of shown up in a church building kind of surprised that you're here in the first place. Like, man, I'd never thought I would come into a church. Uh, but my question is for you to consider why, why are you here? Uh, because the vast majority of you don't have to be. I don't have to be. If it's your job to be, then you kind of have to be, right? But if the majority of you could, could be doing something else, like you could right now be at Bacon Social. You're like, I didn't even think of that this morning. Bacon Social is a real place right down the street. Bacon and whiskey in the morning. Come on. Uh, it's crazy. It's like, because it's made for you, it's like there and I guess it's okay. You know, uh, bacon social. You could be at snooze. You could be getting some extra sleep unless you have children. There's no such thing as extra sleep once you have children. That doesn't exist. But you could be doing some yard work. You could be kind of like celebrating the avalanche win last night. Anybody? 7-0. 7-0. Come on. Uh, you could be celebrating that. You could be hanging out. You could be doing a hike in the mountains. You could be walking around Sloan's Lake or Wash Park playing volleyball. Lots of cool stuff to do. Uh, and you came here. Why? Why? I mean, I would contend but all the mixed motives that we have and all the different things that go on in our lives that, that bring us to spaces, different journeys, different stories, uh, all of us kind of are drawn, and I would say every human being is drawn into God's presence. There's an internal sense of calling to be in the presence of God with his people. There's something that you are fundamentally made for as you gather together in God's presence with God's people, there's something that resonates with us as people that God draws us because this is who we are created to be. We are created to be people who live our lives in the presence of God as a part of the family of God. And what Psalm 122 is, is all about is this kind of arrival as the people of God from all these different stories, all these different places have come from a long way off and have arrived together in God's house, in God's presence together to experience his presence and to come together as a family, to remind themselves, to remind each other what it means to be a family united under the redeeming love of God. To remind each other what it means to be a family gathered together celebrating who God is and what he's done. To remind each other what it means to be a community of people that sit under the reign of God, under the authority of God. And as we gather together, that, that sense of calling to be in God's presence with God's people ought to evoke within us a sense of joy a sense of gladness, and it doesn't always do that. It doesn't always do that for me. It doesn't always do that for you. I understand that. And the question we're asking today is, what does it mean? Why is it important for us to continue to pursue God's presence, God's presence with his people as we gather together week in and week out? And that's what Psalm 122 is fundamentally about. It's about these rhythms in the life of God's people where they gather together in God's presence as a family. It's about the joy that comes, the life that comes, the hope that comes, and the opportunity to look together to God to make even the areas where things still feel broken, things still feel severed, to look to him to make it right. So what I want to do this morning is just walk through, we're going to walk through kind of in three sections here. Uh, the passage, the poetry is broken up into kind of three strophes, and we're going to kind of take them one at a time. The first one we'll look at here in verses one and two. We're going to say, why do we gather together as the people of God? Why do we gather together? Look with me, Psalm 122. Starting in verse 1. It's a song of ascents. It's the third of the 15 song of ascents. This one, originally penned by David, later compiled and arranged by the people of God in later generations. The psalmist says, I was glad 
when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. At some point, there was an invitation for the psalmist that somebody else said, let's go get in God's presence together. And the psalmist said that evoked in him a sense of gladness, a sense of joy, something that in his inner being said, yes, that's where I need to be. I want to be in the presence of God. I long to be in the presence of God with his people. So when I was invited to enter into God's presence, my heart erupted with joy. I was glad. I was rejoicing. I was celebrating because something within me erupted in that invitation. And where we're at in the kind of string of the songs of ascent in this third one is they have finally arrived inside the gates of Jerusalem. Look with me, Psalm 122, verse 2. He says, Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Our feet have been standing within your gates. I want to remind you kind of where we're at in the Songs of Ascent. We talked about this a little while ago, that the Songs of Ascent are 15 songs that are kind of form a, a playlist for the people of God on their pilgrimage towards God's presence, towards the temple. And so three times every year during these three pilgrimage feasts, the people of God would come from the different tribes from which they lived in these different tribes, and they would make their way to Jerusalem to celebrate God's presence and to come into God's presence. I'm going to show a map here on the screen uh, for a moment where you can kind of see where these tribes are around Israel and where they are around uh, the kind of surrounding region. So Jerusalem is right there in the middle. If you see the Dead Sea, it's the lower body of water on the kind of bottom center of your screen. Jerusalem is just immediately to the northwest, that little dot there. And all these different kind of areas with different colors represent where the different tribes lived. Those tribes were tribal allotments of land designated in the book of Judges. You can read about it in Judges 13. They would live in these different tribes, and they would worship God in those tribes in different ways throughout the year, week in, week out, day in, day out, three times a year. They would take a pilgrimage journey and make their way to Jerusalem. They would ascend to Jerusalem. Kind of topographically, they're making their way up to the city of David, up to Jerusalem to worship God. And so as they would make their way, for some of them, it's a half-day journey. Some of them, it's a day journey. Some of them, it's a two-day. Some of them, it's a five-day, seven-day journey. They'd pack up their stuff and they'd make their way. As they were making their way to Jerusalem, these songs were intended to be the kind of playlist that would begin to govern and guide their heart, to kind of cultivate their heart, to prepare them for what it meant to come into God's presence. So we looked a couple weeks ago at Psalm 120, where they're remembering what it means and feels like to be away from God's presence. And the psalmist is broken. He feels the distance from God, and he feels how not right that the world is full of ideologies that are warring against his soul and brokenness and pain. And even where he longs for shalom, which is this word where we we kind of translate it peace in in the Bible, but the idea is wholeness, things as they ought to be. He longs for the world as it ought to be, but in his life away from God's presence, he feels pain, division, brokenness. And he's lamenting that. He's saying, woe to me. Woe to me as I live in these lands far away. It's the beginning of the journey is this holy discontent, this sense of life away from God's presence and separated and scattered is not the life it ought to be. There is within the psalmist and there is within every human being a sense of life is not as it ought to be. When we're away from God's presence and disconnected from his people, life's not what it's supposed to be. In our world, uh, we try to build life in a lot of different creative ways, a satisfying, joyful life. We try to build the life we long for away from God, away from his people, in disconnected, scattered ways out here. And one of my favorite frameworks for thinking about that is a framework uh, by a guy named Charles Taylor. He talks about trying to build our life, what he calls this kind of secular age, and what he calls the imminent frame, which is the sort of 
temporal, the immediate, and the material. So the things that you can achieve in life here and now, and that you can touch and feel, the things you can accumulate, the things you can achieve and accomplish. And we, all of us, in different ways, are trying to build a sense of life as it ought to be in the temporal and in the material. And the things that we can achieve here and the things we can touch and feel and accumulate. And so we try to build a sense of joy in life as it ought to be through our career. And we try to kind of situate our career in certain ways. If we can get our career in the right spot, life will be as it ought to be. And we try to do it with family and friends and our relationships. And we try to kind of get to that next stage of life as it ought to be. And we try to do it with our recreation life and get the next vacation and get to the right neighborhood and get to the right city and get to the right stage of life and get to the next whatever it is. If I can get back to where I was before, some sense of like once I finally get this all situated, life will be as it ought to be. And we're trying to do that in the immediate and in the material. All of us. And so for a long time, people have used a passage from Ecclesiastes to say that there there are within human beings this kind of God-sized hole in our heart. But honestly, a lot of people in the secular age don't feel that. They feel like they can get kind of close. They feel like life in Denver is like decent. Like I, I can go hiking in the mountains. I can have this career in the city. I can have these friends and these relationships. And I can kind of get to this situation. And everybody's kind of trying to get there. And there isn't this sense of kind of a, a big hole. But there is what Charles Taylor and what Jamie Smith will talk about. is like there's a haunting. You're haunted by the transcendent. Like your own mortality says something. Like there's got to be something more. There's got to be something more. Your own dissatisfaction, the disillusionment you feel moment after moment when you finally get that job or you finally get the family or you finally get to that next stage of life and you feel like it's not quite it. Like it's decent, but it's not quite it. And there's this dissolute, maybe it's just the next little step, the next little thing. And so those are all these ways that we're, we're haunted by the sense of something's missing. We're haunted by the eternal and we're haunted by the transcendent, the, the reality that there's something bigger than the material world. There's something more significant. And it's when you come to this place, like I'm kind of done trying to build my life apart from God's presence. I'm kind of done trying to just get to the next thing. I'm recognizing that there's something broken. Shalom can't happen away from God. And you finally turn. And this is what Psalm 121 is all about. I lift my eyes to the hills. I lift my eyes to Jerusalem. I lift my eyes to the temple. I lift my eyes back to God. And that's the biblical concept of repentance. I'm turning away from trying to make it all work here. I've realized and recognized I'm just avoiding the God who made me. And it's time for me to head home. Psalm 121 is about that journey home. And on that journey home, there are trials and temptations and pains that you work through and process. By the time we get to Psalm 122, my feet are inside your gates. You've arrived at Jerusalem. You're inside the city walls. You can see the Temple Mount. You can see the people of God, and you're there. And something is now saying, yes, I'm home. This is where I was made to be. I was made to be in the presence of God. That's the first thing that we see is why do we gather together regularly as the people of God? Because we remember that we are at home in God's presence only. Do you know you can have job loss, family conflict, pain in the church, difficulty in your career, difficulty financially, difficulty with your health, and be at home in God's presence and find peace in his presence? That your situation and your circumstances aren't the kind of source of ultimate stabilizing peace and shalom and wholeness. It is God's presence. When you draw near to God, it doesn't make all the conflict go away. It doesn't make all the difficulty go away. It doesn't make your health awesome. It doesn't make all of the things in your life go exactly the way you want them to be. But it brings a sense of stability and peace, of rightness, as you're in the presence of your Father. 
We gather together week after week to remember where our true home is. We sang about it. You say, come, come, come. Lay down your burdens. Give up your worries. Child, come home. You say, come, come, come. My heart is gentle. My way is easy. I am your home. This is where you belong. This is where you're made to be, knowing the love of the Father, his grace and kindness for you. The people of Israel would make that journey three times a year so that they would not forget where their true home was. Their true home is found in God's presence. Now, this passage is set up talking about the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord, for us, we don't think about it as a building. This church, as beautiful as this building is, is not the house of the Lord. What is the house of the Lord? For the Israelites, the house of the Lord is very much the temple of God. It was the temple. The, the reason why Jerusalem was such a special place is because it's where the temple was. And the reason why the temple was such a sp- special place is it's because where, it's where Yahweh lives. It's where the creator of the heavens and the earth comes and has make, made his home among his people. And so when we think about the temple, we're not thinking of kind of like the need to make our way to a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. We're thinking about what does it mean to be in the presence of God? The temple in the ancient Near East was seen as a sacred space. There's a sacred space where the, the Godhead, where the glory of God would come and make his home among the people of God, where people and the creator and the gods of this world could interact. And for the people of Israel, they understood that the temple in Jerusalem was the place where the creator of the heavens and earth had made his home. But it wasn't ever ultimately about the temple. In fact, if you go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, it's stunning. It's a stunning kind of story where when God's creating the earth in six days and resting on the seventh day, the whole thing is framed not just as a kind of creation of the the universe, but it's framed as the creation of a temple. In fact, when they later would give the instructions for how to construct the tabernacle, it'd be the same thing. It'd be a seven-day process of building this tabernacle. And so when God is kind of creating the earth, in these six days, and on the seventh day, the idea is he's come into this sacred space, the whole world, and he's come and he's made his home in this space with his people. And around this home, there are trees, and there's vegetation, there's gardens, and there's rivers, and these special trees that stand at the center, and he plants human beings into the garden. He says, I want you to work it and keep it. When you later learn about the creation of the tabernacle and the temple, all of the images are images that harken back to the Garden of Eden. All the images on the curtains are vegetation, and all these fruit bearing things. The menorah itself was the symbol of the tree of life. And the priests were called in the temple, same words, to work it and to keep it. The idea is this place, this temple is like what the creation was made to be. And so human beings in the beginning, in this space with God, when they finally rejected God's reign and said no to God's presence, no to God's love, no to God's wisdom, they're separated from that sacred space where God lives and they're exiled east of Eden, outside the temple. And you have these seraphim that, that guard the, t- the garden itself, like with these winged beings that would guard the gardens that human beings who have profaned this space would not be welcomed back in without cleansing, without atonement, without forgiveness, without mercy. Same reason why when you see the Ark of the Covenant, there are these cherubim that hang over the Ark of the Covenant with their wings protecting it, reminding human beings have rejected God's presence and need mercy, sacrifice, atonement to be welcomed back in. So all of the Old Testament, when people are drawing near to the temple, what they're being reminded of is they were created, created to be with God, to walk in his presence, to know his love, to trust in his wisdom, to walk in his word. But we, all of us, all of us have run away from him in all sorts of different directions. And so as we gather back, we're remembering this is what we most fundamentally need. We need God. And to come into that space 
with all of our brokenness, with all of our issues, requires sacrifice. It requires atonement, which is why the whole Old Testament is full of so much instructions about these sacrificial offerings to remind the people that to be in God's presence, there's a debt that we owe. So when Jesus in the New Testament has finally made his way to the people of God, and he makes his way in, John 1 says he made his home among us. He tabernacled among us, that he is in himself the very presence of God, bringing God's presence to us, showing the love of God, the presence of God, the nearness of God. And then he makes his way to the temple, and what he sees in the temple is that the system itself has become corrupt, and he becomes for us the temple. He said, tear this temple down, and I will rebuild it in three days. And the gospel writers say he was speaking of his body, that Jesus was not this physical temple, but he was the very dwelling place of God. He was the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was that sin offering. He was the high priest who mediated God's presence to his people. He was the curtain where his flesh is ripped, opening up for us access into God's presence. He was the one who had come to reconcile us to God, to bring us home. So on that great invitation we sang about, you say, come, 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 lay down your burdens, give up your worries, child. Come home. Come home. We gather together to remember our home is in the presence of God. Look with me, next verse, starting in verse 3. The psalmist says this, Jerusalem This is built as a city. The idea is built as a true city, the way cities are supposed to be, that's bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There in the city, thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. As the psalmist comes into Jerusalem, he looks around and he says, this is the space where we find refuge. He says, this is a city as it was meant to be. When the Israelites are scattered in all of their tribes and there were different kind of global superpowers coming to bring oppression and judgment and pain, they would make their way into Jerusalem as a walled, fortified city, a place of refuge, a place of safety, a place where they could come together as a family and be safe. I'm growing up in Kansas. I... Just, we would do tornado drills all the time. I never experienced a tornado. Like, turns out tornadoes don't happen like once a week in Kansas in every neighborhood. I know Wizard of Oz got you thinking that way. But we did do a lot of tornado drills. And, uh, and I would always kind of like, you know, some sort of masochistic, like dark part of me is like hoping I'd like do the whole, you know, twister thing, like the belt around the bathtub, you know, with the legs hanging off. It just like felt like a cool scene in that movie. Uh, but we would do these kind of... Um, tornado drills where you'd go into a basement away from windows and you'd gather together in these places of safety and security uh, with your family or at school you do it with your classmates and the idea is like a place of refuge we gather together in a place that's fortified and safe to protect ourselves from the harm that looms outside of this space that's what the psalmist is saying Jerusalem is like it's this place of refuge this place of safety where we've all come from all these different places to say this is the place in God's presence where we together find safety and find refuge. And he begins to talk about the unity that they have there, the unity that they have. What's interesting to me is that the people were divided in so many ways, even in the Old Testament. So where does the unity come from? The unity among God's people doesn't come from our kind of united perfection. You don't come to a place where we've all got it together. It doesn't come from our united values. You don't come to a place where everybody thinks the same way as you and 
thinks the same, kind of takes the same approach of life as you. It doesn't come from our united holiness that we're all like perfectly showing God's love to one another all the time. And like every time I'm with God's people, everybody's so kind and so loving to me. And that's why I love it. It doesn't come from that. Sometimes that's not what we feel. Sometimes that's not what we experience. The unity comes from our united conviction that Jesus is the one who gives refuge. Jesus is the one who gives mercy. Jesus is the one who gives grace. Jesus is the one who gives forgiveness. Jesus is the, one, the hope that I have as a human being to be forgiven and loved and washed and cleansed and changed over time. We gather together as the people of God. And you might come to this space and you're like, I don't know if it feels united. It doesn't always feel united. Sometimes there's pain. That's real. That's real. What, what unites us most fundamentally is our conviction, our shared conviction, that Jesus is our refuge, that Jesus is the one who laid down his life to express God's love. And as we experience his grace, his mercy, his kindness, his patience, his love, we slowly over time learn to manifest that, to show that to one another. It's not perfect. So everywhere we feel the imperfections and the pains and the difficulties, we're not like, oh my gosh, there's sin and brokenness in the church. Of course there is. We're sinful and broken people. That's what the church is fundamental. Doesn't make it okay, but that we're looking together to Jesus for mercy and for grace and for healing and for hope. That the people of God are called to come together. Why do we gather together? Because we remember that we're at home with the family of God. We're at home with the family of God. We are made to be gathered together. We're made to be gathered together. Look with me at the next verse, verse 5. It says, there, or sorry, verse 4. It says, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. So here's the idea. The people of Israel are going to be scattered all over the land. But they had been redeemed. They had been created by God. They had been redeemed by God. God had provided for them time and time again. And as they're all scattered all over the place, it was important to gather together three times a year for these long festivals where they'd come together and remember what God had done. So in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, they're commanded to come together in these feasts and they would remember what God had done. And what it says here in the passage, to give thanks to the Lord. Why do we gather together? To tell God, thank you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for your mercy towards us. Thank you for your kindness towards your people. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your healing. Thank you for being a father to us. And we tell God thank you. And we celebrate the fact that he created us. He redeemed us. He provides for us. He's with us. That we gather on Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, not just to like learn some stuff from a sermon or not just to sing some songs that we like, but we gather to tell God thank you. He is worthy. It's not most fundamentally about what we get out of it. It's most fundamentally giving glory and praise and honor to God. He is worthy of our worship. We kind of begin to approach the gathering of God's people as consumers when it was never intended to be like that. It's decreed that we gather together to worship God for who he is and what he's done, that we'd gather and we'd hear people singing these songs around us and we'd remember his mercy. We'd remember who, who Jesus is as we sing songs about his grace to us. Remember the joy that comes in his presence. We thank him for his redeeming love. We thank him for his righteousness. We thank him for the blood of Christ. We thank him for the presence of his spirit. We thank him for his guidance. We thank him for, again, over and over and over showing us faithful mercy and grace. And when we do that, we are stepping into who we are made to be as humans. 
We're worshiping God for who he is and what he's done. And look with me at that next verse, verse 5. It says, There in the city of David, thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. As David kind of constructed walls, and as those walls would expand, and the temple was built under Solomon, and that would expand over time, David had a palace, Solomon had a palace. There was sort of a, a compound where the kings of Israel would reign and manifest God's rule over his people. They'd be these images of God's kingly rule over his people. And so as they're gathering together, they're not just saying, hey, we're gathering to remember that we're united as a family under the refuge and the mercy and the grace of God. We're not just gathering together to praise God. We're also gathering together to submit to his authority. That what, what fundamentally caused the brokenness in our own lives and in the world around us is when we rejected his authority and decided we're going to do it our own way. So once we finally realize that that, that path away from God's presence, that, that kind of running away from him brought pain and destruction, and we finally turn and we make our way back. We're, one, saying thank you for redeeming us and forgiving us and washing us. We're, two, saying thank you for who you are and, and your provision and care, but we're also saying we're going to resubmit to your word. We're going to come under your authority. We're going to let you tell us what it means to be human. We're going to let you tell us what the flourishing life is like. We're going to let you, the creator, exercise your kingly rule over us. And we as created human beings are going to say, we're not going to go our own way. There's a way that seems right to the man, but the end thereof is the way of death. The way we're going to follow is the way of our king. And we're going to let his word reign over us. We're going to trust his word. We're going to submit to his word. We're going to learn. And we're going to fumble and we're going to fail. And we're going to look to his mercy again and again. But his word, his authority, his kingly rule means something. Why do we gather together? To corporately submit to the authority of our king. You were made for that. Submission to the authority of our God is not something that like is a hot topic. And yet it's fundamental to the human existence. It was actually the, the turning from that was fundamental to human brokenness, division, pain, and death. So when we turn, when we come in and we sing about his redeeming love, we also submit to his wise, good authority over us. That's why we gather together. That's why we gather together. But you know what also happens when we gather together? We realize that's still not yet the way it ought to be. It can sound really good to say, we gather together to be in God's presence, but you might not feel like you're in God's presence. It might not feel like that. Well, we gather together to, you know, again, remember the unity that we have as the people of God. Well, it might not feel like that. It might feel a lot of pain. We, we gather together to, to worship, but you might not feel a heart full of worship. You might feel a lot of pain and sadness and distance. We gather together to submit to his word, but there's parts of us that still want to run in all these different directions. That's why I love the way this psalm ends. It turns from this joyful celebration into this pleading prayer Look with me, verse 6. So we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure. And the idea is, may they be at rest. May they be at ease who love you. Peace be within your walls and rest, ease, comfort within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. And the idea is, hey, we've made our way back to the city, but it's, it's, the city itself is broken. There's still pain outside of us. And there's still pain within us. 
And they recognized that. In fact, when the people of Israel, after they had built the temple and they experienced life in God's presence, they rejected God's reign again. They were exiled. They went out to Babylon. They're in Babylon for 70 years. When they finally were set free from their captivity in Babylon, made their way back to Jerusalem, the the walls are torn down, the temple's destroyed. It's all in shambles. You can read about Nehemiah, them rebuilding the walls. You can read about Ezra, them kind of rebuilding the people. And then they would rebuild the temple. And you can read a lot about the rebuilding of the temple in this minor prophet, just a few chapters, the book of Haggai. And in Haggai, the Lord's telling the people they're back in the land, and they've all been busying themselves building their own little kingdoms, their own little houses. They've been getting cool wallpaper on their walls and paneling and different things like that. And he's like, hey, you're all like tending to your houses, but my house lies in ruins. Build me a house, the Lord said that I might take pleasure in it. In other words, prioritize my presence among you. You'd experience what you're fundamentally made for. Cool, you're back in the city, but you have neglected my presence. And so it's one of my favorite minor prophets because they respond. And led by this king, Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel leads the people and they rebuild the house of the Lord. I want to read to you from Haggai chapter 2 because after they rebuilt it, there was still something that was not right Still something that was lacking. Look at me, uh, Haggai chapter 2. It'll be on the screen here, starting in verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant, that promise that I bound myself to you, that I made with you, when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. So don't be afraid, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts, and the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give shalom, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. They made their way back. They put the bricks together. They put the mortar in. They built the temple, and the glory of God did not flood that place. They built it, and they looked at it. It wasn't as good as Solomon's temple. Something was still broken, and they found themselves weeping and longing and waiting. Something still not right. Something still not right, and yet God promised, I will make it right. I'm not done with this temple thing. I will bring my presence to you, I will bind up what has been broken. I will bring shalom. I will bring to the world what you long for, justice, peace, righteousness, healing, harmony, hope, life, grace, love. I will bring it. It will come. It will come. And in the person of Jesus, it did come. That that prophecy was fulfilled as Jesus came and tabernacled among us. He made his home. He shed his blood. He welcomes us into the presence of God. He poured out his very spirit, the spirit of God, onto his people so that we, like living stones, could be built in this new kind of temple. A temple that's not founded on our righteousness, but founded on the cornerstone of Christ, who was rejected by men who laid down his life to atone for us, to wash us, to cleanse us. And so as we gather week in and week out, we recognize there's still brokenness in the world, and there's still brokenness in our church, and there's still brokenness in me and in you. 
And so we look together to Jesus, to his love, to his righteousness, to his kindness, his care, to his healing and transformative work as we trust him to restore and to redeem. And there's a day when he will. There's a day when he will redeem all things. In fact, when you see the book of Revelation, there's this image in Revelation 21 and 22 that's the heavens and the earth, all things are made new. And as John describes this vision, he describes it with the images of a temple. Have you ever found it weird in Revelation 21 that the world is kind of pictured as a cube? It's like, what's well, a kind of weird world? You know, kind of really have to slice off the edges or we met, what are we doing here, you know? Um, it's, it's described as a cube because it's described to explain this idea that the world is like the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was a cube. The very center place of God's presence among his people was in this cubed shape. And the idea is that when God comes and makes all things new, the whole world will be filled up with the presence of God, like the waters cover the sea. That the people of God will be bound together in his presence, where there'll be no more sin, no more crying, no more pain, no more guilt, no more death, where things will be as they ought to be. And so even now, when we gather together, week in, week out, what we're doing is we're getting a taste of that day while recognizing that we're not there yet. And so we look together with hope and we pray for shalom in the church. We pray for shalom among the nations. We pray for peace and restoration around the world. We pray and we plead, God, bring the wholeness, bring the restoration, bring the shalom that we were created to long for. And we gather week in, week out to remember and have these little foretastes of what God has done through the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to welcome us into his presence already to bind us together as a people already, to show us his love already, to guide us already, but we recognize that we're not yet at the end. And we look to him and we pray for God to bring it through his grace and by his power. And let's pray for that right now. Jesus, we come now and we pray for your grace and your peace upon us and among us. We need your healing. We need your cleansing. We need your power. And we say thank you for who you are, Father, Son, Spirit, for what you've done. I want to praise the Father. I want to praise the Son. I want to praise the Spirit for who you are, Father, Son, and Spirit as the Godhead, your grace to us, your faithfulness to us, your work among us. Would you help us to be together as a people in our worship of who you are and what you've done? Would you help us lean into the work that you're doing in each of our lives individually? And would you grow up within us a hunger for your shalom, for your wholeness, for your restoration, that we look with patience, with perseverance, and with hope today when you will come again and make all things new. So pour out grace on us even now, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. Heart Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media at Heart Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at partchurch.org. Peace and love.